Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you now to take your copy of God's Word in your hand and open to the New Testament book of Hebrews. We are going to take a break of a few months of our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. And it's for the purpose of studying the concept of church membership. Specifically, we're looking at six commitments of every believer to the local church. And then we're going to look at six commitments of every local church to its members. And this morning, the first commitment is the commitment of gathering. Gathering. Let's look at our text, Hebrews 10. I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to good deeds and to love, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the word commitment has become somewhat of a pejorative term in our cultural context. For many, it seems uh, that it's something to be avoided because it ties one down, it limits personal freedom and choices. And personal freedom and choices seems to be the preferred condition to all others in our society. That fear and nearly disdain of commitment manifests itself in just about every area of society. And certainly in all of society's institutions. The most obvious one is the institution of marriage. Did you know according to the United States Census Bureau, that the number of unmarried couples living together in this country increased by 138% from 1990 to 2010. That means 15 million people live in a relationship where they're not married to the person they're living with. Now, why is that? Well, I think there's lots of factors, but certainly one of them has to be the avoidance of commitment. I'm happy to report that there are wonderful exceptions to that, thankfully. Just last week I had the great honor of preaching the funeral message of one of the dear saints of our church, Mrs. Helen Hunt. Helen died a few days before her 94th birthday, and she is survived by her husband of 76 years, Mr. John Hunt. They married while Helen was still in high school, just about six months before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So six months into their marriage, he was called away to service in the South Pacific where he stayed until the war ended while he was on a boat just about to go into Japan. He came back home after she had waited for him faithfully and they started a life together and they've been together ever since. And our church is blessed to have many marriages like that. I I know of three couples in our church who celebrated 60 years together this year. And may the Lord uh, increase their tribe. But there is a disdain and aversion to commitment as a whole in our culture. And I think the reason we admire people like the Hunt so much is that their circumstance is increasingly rare. And unfortunately, that aversion to commitment that we see in the culture at large seems to have infiltrated into the church as it relates to church membership. What I mean is this, many people in our area float around from church to church without belonging formally anywhere. 
They like the music over here, and they like the preacher over there, and they like the children's ministry in the third place. And I call it a la carte Christianity, and I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. We know that people go to churches for all sorts of reasons. There was a man in our former church in Mississippi who would show up periodically. He was a widower. And one day I asked him about his church affiliation, and he said, Pastor, I'm what you call a buzzard Baptist. And I said, what in the world is a buzzard Baptist? He says, I, I circle around from church to church until I find one that's having a potluck lunch, and that's where I go to church that Sunday. And he wasn't kidding. Well, we laugh at his honesty, but the truth is, lack of commitment to a local church is a real problem across our nation. You see, when the New Testament addresses the subject of the local church, it does so in some very clear images. The most well-known probably is that of the body. Paul says we all belong to the same body, right? Christ is the head and each individual makes up the component parts, the hands and feet. And then there's the image of family. Ephesians 1 says we have been adopted into God's family. Therefore, we call one another brother and sister. God is our Father. He calls us sons and daughters. And so when you're in a family, if you're a good family member, you're committed to it. You're loyal to the other people there. So before we dive into this study of the church, I simply want to make a, a few personal observations and introduction. First of all, I want you to know I'm preaching this series out of love. I love the local church. I grew up in it. You know my father was a pastor for 50 years. I started attending church regularly at negative nine months. <laughs> and there's really never been a period in my life where I have not been active in a local church. Let me be very specific though. I love First Baptist Church of Keller. I have uh, been a member here going on 18 years. That's hard to believe. You all keep getting older and I stay the same. <laughs> but it's here at First Baptist Church of Keller that I was mentored as a seminary student by our former pastor. It, it's in this building that I met my wife in a Sunday school class. It's right up here, three feet in front of me, where my four children were dedicated to the Lord. It's where my in-laws and parents now attend to church. It's where my kids meet their aunts and uncles and cousins every Sunday. It's where my best friends are. It's where I am held accountable for all of the commitments I have made to these people. And it is where the people attend church for whose souls the Bible says I will give an account. And I can't imagine ever leaving here voluntarily. I, I truly have no desire to pastor anywhere or anyone else. So I'm addressing this series of messages to two groups of people. One, those who have yet to make a commitment to church membership. I am unashamedly calling you to do that if you're a born-again believer. And two, I'm addressing these messages to those of us who are members of a local church who need to be reminded about the commitments we've made. And that includes me and I think most of you as well. So with that said, let's, let's look at the causes for this aversion to commitment in the local church. I, I'm gonna give you three reasons, these are not exhausted. Number one is, I think we have a problem with an ice tray mentality. What I mean for that is, is we've adopted the cultural philosophy that life can be divided neatly into compartments of priorities and time and money. And like ice cubes in a tray, though they're made out of the same stuff, they never touch one another. 
And so many people I've heard say, says, well, I've got my compartment of work. Here's my work life. It takes up a good portion of my time. Here's my family compartment. So when I'm not at work and on the weekends, I'm devoted to my family. Here's my entertainment or my hobbies. I spend some time on that. And then what's left over, that's the time I give to my church. Well, the Bible teaches a holistic approach to our faith. Colossians 3, 4, listen. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Now, there's a great gulf of difference between having your faith in Christ as a compartment of your life and having Christ be your life, right? And so when you are a Christian and you are connected to other Christians in the context of local church, it should not be a compartment of your life. It ought to be your life. And, and we're missing that, I fear. Secondly, uh, I put the blame on church leaders, and I'm including pastors in this. It's acquiescence from church leadership to the culture. It seems that, that many of we pastors have sort of wetted our finger and held it up to the winds of change, ask people what they want, and then determine to give it to them. It's sort of a surrender call. If you can't beat them, join them. If people won't conform to the biblical norm of church membership, then we'll change the whole idea of church membership or either jettison it altogether. We know that people in the culture have an aversion to commitment, so let's take away any call to be committed to the local church. And that manifests itself in a lot of ways. Did you know that many churches have abandoned the whole concept of church membership? That is, we're going to pay smooth and slick professionals to put on a performance. We're going to open the doors to the public, and you come if you want, but if you don't, that's up to you. You can be as anonymous as you like. No one's going to ask you to serve or to do anything. It's all about you after all. We'll even guarantee a 45-minute service so you can get to the lake as quickly as possible. And many churches are designing their programming to make it as convenient as possible for people. It reminds me of uh, a story Tom Grieve, who's a retired baseball player for the Texas Rangers, tells of when the team moved from Washington, D.C. to Texas in the 1970s, they did not have much of a fan base. In fact, the stands were almost always empty during the hot summer months. And so the story is told that some out-of-town tourists called the ticket office and asked what time the game started that night, and the receptionist says, what time can you be here? <laughs> and we've sort of made church into that same idea, ask people what they want, and and give it to them. And I think that is based on a third problem, that is an overemphasis on individualized Christianity. We evangelicals, and we Baptists in particular, talk a lot about a personal relationship with Christ, as we should. Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, talks about that small gate. And when I preach that text, I often talk about that gate in terms of a turnstile, that it only allows one person in at a time. You can't be converted in a group that you have to come to personal faith and trust in Christ. And that's true. But once you're through that gate of Christ and you're on that path of sanctification, you dare not walk it alone. We have a team of men who are leaving this week for India. We need to pray for them. And then in a few weeks, another team for Nepal, where we've been serving for years. And every time I think about northern India or Nepal, I think about some of the most treacherous and grand mountain ranges in the world. People 
travel from all over the world to challenge Mount Everest in Nepal. But if they have any sense at all, they never do it alone. They travel in teams. And the Bible says that the church is the family God has given you to walk that path that is full of dangers, toils, and snares. And so if we're going to emphasize church membership over the next 12 weeks, and we certainly are, we need to establish that it's biblical, right? Don't we have a high view of Scripture here? That we believe that the Scripture is the basis of our faith and practice. Well, is local church membership biblical? It certainly is. And it began on the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. You remember that Peter preached, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read this, after he preached, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That sounds a whole lot like a local church to me. In fact, it goes on to say that the Lord was adding to their number daily, such as were being saved. Well, the question is, adding to what? Adding to the list of people who were known to be followers of Christ. They had lists. We know that because they had lists for widows. You had to meet certain criteria to have your physical needs met as a widow. They, they kept records. And so when one believer moved from one region to the other, such as Apollos or John Mark did in the New Testament, they were sent along with letters of recommendations. We Baptists still do that, by the way. If you transfer your membership from one Baptist church to another, we ask for your letter of recommendation. And that's a biblical thing to do. The point is that whatever they were doing, whether they were practicing church discipline or whether they were taking of the Lord's Supper or having baptisms, it was done in the context of a community of believers. And so, yes, we are on sound biblical footing. So let's talk this morning, in the time that is remaining, about the first commitment, and that is the commitment of gathering. It is so basic, yet so important. Again, let's go back to our text, Hebrews 10. He says, let us hold fast. You notice that the author includes himself. This is a plural, personal pronoun. He is saying, let we believers hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now, what is the confession of our hope? Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? It is our trust and faith that Christ is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And in all of that implies his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is, don't turn back. For he has, who promised is faithful. Let us be faithful to our commitment because we know he's going to be faithful. Paul says, he who has began a good work in you will complete it. Right? And so let us hold fast to confession. He is speaking in an eschatological context. Eschatology is the study of last things. He is picturing here that the days are drawing nigh for Jesus' second coming. And because that is the case... We need to be more committed to a meeting together in the context of the local church. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is drawing near? It is none other than the day of the Lord. It is the judgment. I had several of you call me this week or email and say, what do you think about all these hurricanes? 
these fires, these earthquakes in Mexico? And, and I have a standard answer. I'm not God. And I'm not about here to say God is judging one particular people or one particular sin, but I know this. The Bible says when you see these things happening, know this, that it is the beginning of birth pains. Now, I said that my wife and I have four children, and I was present for all four of their births, and here's what I know, and she knows a lot better than me. That when a baby's on the way, the contractions are more frequent and more intense the closer the coming of the baby is, right? That's what the Bible says about disasters, that they're going to be more frequent and they're going to be more intense the closer we get to that day. And so what should our response be? Not to forsake the gathering together, not go hide under a rock somewhere. He says that ought to inspire you and provoke you to assemble together more. Because we need the mutual encouragement that comes from belonging to a family of believers. And so the question is, why should we gather? Why should we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? I'm going to give you three reasons. You can think of a dozen. Number one, obviously, to worship. To worship. So when we gather together to worship, right away that tells us it shouldn't be about us, right? Because we don't come to worship each other. We come to worship God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That really describes what we do when we gather. First of all, we have the word of Christ brought to bear. That is the gospel. It is all of his word. And it dwells in us richly. That is, it is the overarching and undergirding component of everything we do. I hope you find that's true here at First Baptist Keller. Whether your children are in the youth group or the preschool or you're the senior adult or you're in choir, everything we do is to be saturated in the Word of God. Because every other thing is just human opinion. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what do we do? We teach one another the Word of God. The reason we do that over and over is because we forget, don't we? We need to teach it over and over. We admonish one another in all wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's not enough to come to church week after week and know every king in the southern and northern kingdoms by heart. It is the application of God's word to your life. All wisdom. And then we sing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes, Praise unto the Lord with those rich theological hymns remind us of the truth that we share with a common faith in Christ and thankfulness in our hearts to God. That ought to be a major component of every time we get together. We ought to thank God for His goodness and His most precious gift, which is His precious and dear Son. You know that. We gather to worship. Secondly, we gather to remind. What are we to remind one another of when we gather, well, of reality, that this world is not our home. I, I need that reminder several times a week. I, I listen to the news and, you know, watch what's going on in the world. I'm like you. If you're not careful, you become anxious and worried. And I need to come together with you and have you remind me and me remind you that this world is not our home. We are traveling pilgrims and we are moving through. Yes, we have to live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And so how do we remind one another that we are kingdom citizens? Well, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but also through the ordinances. Next Sunday morning, 
We're going to commemorate the Lord's Supper here as we do quite often. And Jesus says, every time you do this, do it in what? Remembrance. Same root word as remind. We're reminding one another of who we are and whose we are. And we're reminding one another of the commitments that we have made to Christ and to one another. We do this not only through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, but through the ordinance of baptism. This morning, Naomi was baptized. And I hope all of you who are saved and were baptized went back in your mind to that day when you were baptized. It reminds all of us of the goodness of the Lord and that we continually are adding to the family. And we will continue to add to the family until Christ comes for his church. But I say again, we need to be constantly reminded. The question is always asked in Baptist churches, how often should we do the Lord's Supper? I say often, often, because we need those reminders because we forget. Third thing that we come together is to encourage one another. Don't you get encouraged by your Sunday school class? when you come to your men's or women's Bible study, when you're in a prayer group, we all need that encouragement. First of all, we need to be encouraged not to quit. I had a wise pastor tell me when I first started pastoring, I was complaining about how things were going. He said, Keith, don't ever resign on a Monday morning. And what he meant by that is, you know, you have a bad Sunday and you think this is is not going well and I'm just gonna quit. And so we need one another to say, hey, don't quit. We've come too far to turn back now. And we all are tempted. And the longer you stay away from brothers and sisters in Christ, the greater the temptation to throw in the towel is going to be. Spur one another on, he says. Verse 24, look at it. Let us consider how to stimulate, to prod one another on to love and good deeds. That really is our Christian witness, isn't it? Scripture says that the world at large will know you, will be able to identify you as a believer by your love one for one another. And then for good deeds, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so those are two of our primary job descriptors as Christians and as a local church. We're to love one another so open and obviously that other people are attracted to it and to glorify God through our good deeds. Not to pat ourselves on the back, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to honor and magnify our Lord. To do good works. Now, the question is how do we do that? But let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. How can we do those things? Well. It's by practicing the one another's. You know what I'm talking about. Pray for one another, the Bible says. Confess your sins one to another. Submit one to another. Bear one another's burdens. On and on the list goes. But all of those have one thing in common as far as I can tell. They all are accomplished in the context of a local church family. Now from time to time, I will have people that I'm talking to in the community say to me, well, I know you are the pastor at First Baptist Keller, but I don't need a church to be a Christian. Ever heard people tell you that? I've had several tell me 
just recently. That, that you know, I study the Bible at home. I, I watch preachers on television. I really don't need other people knowing my business or in my life to be a follower of Christ. And there is a wonderful Greek word I learned in seminary for that. Bologna. <laughs> that is not true. The Lord made us and equips us through other people to serve Him. This is the atmosphere. This is the crucible, if you will. This is the, the place in which these things are to be accomplished. You, you need one another. <laughs> That's a plural, isn't it? You can't have another without having someone else. And so to practice the one another's of the New Testament, you have to be around other Christians. Let me get very specific. As churches get larger, as ours has over the years, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. We have to be much more intentional than we used to be. And so that's why when you consider joining First Baptist Church of Keller, we insist that you also join a Sunday school class, small group Bible study group, because our church is not the largest in this city by any means, but it is large enough that if you want to be isolated and anonymous, you can be. And I tell our new members class, our job is to make that as difficult as possible on you. We try to make it almost impossible for you to be isolated or anonymous because that's not the Lord's will. And so what we encourage you to do is get in that small group Bible study with that group of 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 other people that you can know, who can know you, that you can practice the one another's. And the second thing is to exercise your unique spiritual gift. You know that we teach and believe here because we believe the Bible teaches clearly that every child of God, every truly born again person has at least one spiritual gift. Some people have the gift of teaching, some have the gift of giving, some have the gift of faith. There's all sorts of gifts and there's not one Christian that is bankrupt of gifts. That's according to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit distributes those gifts as He pleases. But all are important. That's what Paul was saying when he says some are hands and some are eyes. One can't say to the other, I have no need of you. All those gifts are essential if the body is to work with fluidity and with grace and with beauty. And, and to that person that says, I don't have to be attached to a body to function, let me ask you this. Does a hand have to be attached to a body to function? And not to be grotesque, but a hand or any other body part detached from the body is not beautiful or graceful, it is grotesque. And most importantly, it is not functioning. And if we're not functioning with our spiritual gifts, we're not bringing glory to God. And so let, let me say what I'm going to repeat many times over the next 12 weeks. Being a Christian is not about you. Lots of times, when people visit the church, if we're not careful, we turn into a car salesman. Hey, come to our church and we're going to give you a great children's ministry. And, uh, you know, we've got great music. And, and all of those things are true. But what I long to hear from people when I visit in their homes, when they're considering joining our church is, Pastor, where do you need us to serve? Because we have needs all throughout the body, and God sends you to a local congregation, of course, 
you're going to get your needs met as you do in any good family, in any healthy family, but you have a role in exercising your spiritual gifts for the good of others and for, most importantly, the glory of God. And so if you're not in a local church or you're not exercising your spiritual gifts or you're not in accountability relationship to other people, you're not obeying the will of God. That, that's as clear as I can possibly make it. And look, I don't beg people to join our church. I have discouraged some people from joining our church. But if the Lord would, would send you here, we want you. If you're born again, that's of course the prerequisite. But we want you to come with the understanding that, that we take church membership seriously here. And that we love you enough that if you're one of us, if we see your life going in a direction that's going to put your family at risk, or your personal testimony at risk, or the good name of our Lord at risk, we love you enough to tell you about that. And you have to be submissive and accountable enough to one another for that to take place. But you know what? In an atmosphere where people love each other and their family and they have each other's best interest at heart and the centrality of Jesus Christ is the order of the day, there is nothing more beautiful than a church who is functioning on all cylinders. And I said I love this church and I do. It's as healthy and, and a wonderful a church as I've ever been around in my life. But we can do better, can't we? When every member of this church is exercising their spiritual gifts, when every member of our church is submitting to one another in that accountability relationship, when every one of us have the good name of Christ and His glory as our first thought, what can happen in Keller, Texas? I want to see it, don't you? Let's pray that the Lord would grant it so. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we have one another. Lord, you haven't saved us to be islands unto ourselves. Lord, we're not alone on this treacherous path to heaven. We have one another and we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Lord, wherever we see you at work in the New Testament, it is in the context of a church. Lord, that informs us that, that we need as Christians, not only to be members of a church, but to be active in it. So Lord, as we go through these series, Father, if there are those who have yet to commit to a local church, whether it's here or elsewhere, Lord, I pray that they would. And then for those of us who are members here, Lord, remind us of the commitments that we've made. May we redouble our efforts and our commitment to one another and to you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.